Hello and welcome to Flavour Talks, the BSF's podcast exploring the wonderful world of flavours. Listen in to learn more about the people who make the food you eat taste great. Welcome. Uh, this evening we're joined with, uh, by uh, Sam Bompus of Bompus and Par. And Sam, welcome. This is going to be a really, really great discussion and I've been excited for a long time. Um, and we, we will obviously start to talk about some of the intricacies of the, the projects that you guys have worked, worked on in the past as a, as a company. But in order to start off, I think it would be quite useful for you to give an, a, like a self-introduction of who you are and I guess what Bompus and Par do and uh, kind of how you're interested in this kind of olfactory space or this uh, organoleptic space, rather. Yes. Um, well, hello, hello. Uh, I'm Sam Bompus and um, got to start Bombs and Pass 16 years ago this week with uh, a very good friend of mine, um, uh, Harry Parr. We're at school together and we sort of found in our, in our early 20s, we're remarkably enthusiastic about food and drink. And um, we set up a company um, rather unoriginally called our two names, Bompus and Bar, um, in order to, to pursue those interests initially with Wobbly Jelly. Um, Harry at the time was studying to be an architect. I was working in marketing. And, um, you know, our, our, our shared interest is the joy and wonder of food. And with wobbly with jelly why did we get into jelly and looking back on it it, it, was, it seemed very rational at the time but also um uh, not maybe as considered as, as it might have been given that our, our first business meeting lasted exactly one hour and we decided uh, the name of the company what our, our our total goal would be that would specialize in jelly sorted all the logos and branding if only things were that simple and that straightforward uh now um but but really like jelly because it was um uh, we thought it had a, a, a beautiful uh, forgotten uh, british history um it's one that you could do a whole show just on just on that the history of jelly it'd be fascinating um it, it it tied in um with people's interest in um uh not only at the time uh, sort of molecular cooking techniques so sort of using um if you've got to present tomato 16 ways on a plate one of those ways is probably going to be some form of a gel um and uh but then then also uh you can make it figurative you can you can bring the design world into it and how is able to use sorts of things he's learning to do to how to do as an architect to design jellies um and uh that makes it rather wondrous it's very cool actually thinking about the structural integrity of jelly you would you would often think that actually it's not that structurally it doesn't have that much structural integrity to start with but i've i've seen some of your initial designs and things and actually you were able to build like some pretty unbelievable structures just using jelly alone which is unbelievable well well actually a really good jelly that you might want to eat you probably don't want to make it much more than a, a liter in size so that's not that's not very monumental um but you can up the up the gelling agent, or um, yeah, and I guess the biggest jelly we made was was um, about fifty tons in total, and that sat around uh, Estes Great Britain, um, I believe. Might have collaborated with you on it as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> in, terms well, the lime, in terms of the lime flavoring, um, yeah, years ago. Well, um, the, the, but uh, 
no, the, the great thing about jelly then is you can throw people off by color and flavor and, you know, totally, totally mislead them if, between what they see and what they taste. So, yeah, it's, it's great playing around with jelly. And, and, and I'm actually pleased you said that because as a sort of entrepreneur, like, you know, starting point in the realm of um, uh, flavoring, it, it was a good place to learn, um, not, not least because you it's it's such a visual food it's such a like utterly visual food but as a medium that visual impact um can be any flavor whatsoever also you have to pay quite a lot of attention because if you're using a gelatin gelling agent which is obviously fantastic that actually locks in quite a lot of flavor initially and 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 um you don't get as much uh, as many aromas out of it um of course gelatin is marvelous because it, 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 it um is silky and luxurious and um melts in the mouth at body temperature and you get that good flavor release but but um it's a, it's a little bit of an inhibitor so like making a cocktail you have to really amp up um mm. you know any any flavors you're putting into it to to, to get them to have that impact but well, you know of course because of the medium you have this like perfect combination of like huge visual impact and then whatever flavors you want um and this at least for us made us uh, i guess a little bit more aware than we might otherwise been if if the first food stuffs that we were working with were different um about how um you know your sensory apparatus um might be working in tandem between sort of anticipation and delivery and um how you can use them in concert to create a, a, an effect yeah like the, the unif this unified experience kind of thing, yeah. Wasn't the Doctor yeah. Who? There was a Doctor Who who had was was a big fan of jelly beans and jelly babies. Uh, like once you, once you get into it, there's really there's really no way back. No, um, <laughs> it, yeah. And and, and actually, it was, it was some of the problems with jelly. We talked about not being able to make very big jellies that that really got us to um, start doing things like collaborating with um, people who were very great experts, the different scientists. And also specifically addressing the senses. So um, in 2008, we put on something we called an architectural jelly banquet. We wanted to push our craft. We uh, worked with um, all sorts of um, marvellous architects and designers like uh, Roger Stirk Carver and Partners, Lord Foster. They designed jellies and uh, they were architectural because they were made by architects. Now, we sold 2,000 tickets to this event and... Um, quickly discovered that everyone thought the jellies would be vast. They'd be jellies the size of castles, palaces. They'd be able to eat their way through, like in the uh, film Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. Um, and of course, we knew that we won't be able to, wouldn't be able to deliver that at all. Um, so at that point, we uh, did all sorts of things like um, collaborating with an, uh, an inner ear scientist at UCL who was interested in the relationships between collagen and gelatin. Um, and recording the sound of jelly wobbling, um, which sounds lurid and disgusting, um, but was used to amp up the jelly. We also placed all the very small jellies um, on high tables with uh, light rods that projected bounce of light through them. And the tables themselves wobbled. We had a bespoke waggle engine that was a car windscreen wiper motor with a big weight on it, so it made all the jellies wobble. And of course, you bumped the light through them as well. So they, the jellies became these sort of bulbs. And because they're up high, they're quite close to your eye. So they weren't much bigger, but you might have perceived them as being bigger mm. through the, 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 the light. 
and then we then we had our, our, our I think that was when we had our, our um, most rudimentary um, uh, but still frighteningly uh, well very effective scent dispersal mechanism and that was um uh, our friends with some strawberry essence in a in a um uh squeezy bottle as a spray bottle surreptitiously spritzing it around this this vast um uh, palisade where we're having this exhibition and of course there were spoon dancers jelly wrestlers all night party <laughs> lots of jet lots of jelly to eat as well but you know at that point we started learning because some of those jellies had to be out all night so we'd they were just uh food safe dyes and uh, a lot of gelatin there's no point wasting food um and then there were other delicious uh strawberry jellies but because of the light the sounds uh the drinking uh the scent uh we found that that uh, a lot of the, the guests the 2000 guests that came were eating those those um dye-based jellies and then telling us how delicious they were the delicious strawberries um, and of course, we we, we knew um, there's totally others. We also learned a lot as well, which is after eleven o'clock when there's jellies, there's going to be a jelly fight. Um, and uh, <laughs> when you're doing events, you need to plan to do the cleaning up because there'll be a lot of it. <laughs> so, what are the things? So I lo I love the fact that actually we we could you're right talk literally about jelly for the entire yeah. there could be a podcast just about jelly, but actually you guys have done so much other stuff and it would be good to like touch on some of those things as well in in a bit because I think it it ties in it weaves into um, how you were learning you know so you started something because you thought it was a good idea and you thought mate there's a there's a, like a, uh, a value proposition in this we're doing something that no one else is really doing but I want to know kind of how how has your raison d'etre changed? You know, like how has that changed in terms of like what you're trying to, you're, what you're trying to achieve now is kind of agile in its approach, it seems, because you're spotting a gap in the market that, or maybe the market doesn't necessarily exist. And, and I think that's quite important when you think about these startups or the startup that you, that you guys have started yourself is that it's, it's truly unique. And I think that's really important to kind of get across, like, how you're able to be that agile? Uh, well, I think, I think you know, obviously we started our company when we're uh, relatively young in our very early 20s. So, um, you know, a lot of the things we're doing wasn't as the basis of evaluating a market, putting together a business plan, having a strategy, the sorts of things that, that we do now and we regularly do when we're advising um, clients you work with, doing benchmarking. We're doing things because at that age, you're just totally plugged into the zeitgeist you're just there like riding surfing the very front wave of it and you know it means that we were doing things because we thought you know, we were just astonished that they didn't exist and we thought london would be a far more interesting place in london as a, a, a and britain more widely as a really good crucible for innovation and creativity um, so, you know, when we'd start off doing food design and uh, now, of course, I've always been many, many food designers working for big corporates, but we're doing it in a much more consumer facing way. And, and suddenly it became a whole discipline with courses around the world being taught in food design. We started doing events that we thought were cool and interesting and involved food and brought people together around the table in non-restaurant settings and non-food uh, outlet settings. And suddenly we found out that we were doing uh, pop-up dinner experiences at a time before pop-up was a, a bad word or a, at least a cliched <laughs> word. So, uh, similarly with um, creating experiences, we found that we're doing um, 
experiential marketing before um, you know, ad agencies had all got an experiential marketing wing. And then moving into the sorts of things that we work on now beyond um, the strategy work and the consultancy, um, you know, a lot of it is uh, putting together attractions and location-based experiences and, and something that, that we came to just through the hunger to bring people together in a, in a place to look at things, eat things, taste things, um, tickle each other, whatever, <laughs> <laughs> in a way that they, they wouldn't otherwise be able to do. And, and um you know i think i think those are good reasons to to do things as well yeah 100 and you know so one of the other things that i i always look at the stuff that you guys have done before sometimes i've had the opportunity to work alongside you or to at least support on some of the things that were pretty good but the the reason that i was seeing if something is possible or isn't possible sometimes it's from an ask that is so unexpected you know, you you are the ask is something that actually isn't associated to an existing application end use or to an existing market per se, but it means that you overcome challenges and hurdles that you wouldn't necessarily have even thought about before. But mm. in overcoming those channel challenges, actually for a for a big kind of flavor and fragrance house that I work for now, it becomes super useful because you're applying that same knowledge and wisdom to something completely different. You know, and I think that's that's an important aspect for a lot of our listeners will be like junior flavorists or working within the the kind of flavor industry and food industry and actually being able to kind of get out of your comfort zone. And I say comfort zone, it's it's really what the the stresses that exist from a, a an organizational background and an organizational perspective. Now it gets you to think about things if those rules don't apply. You know, yeah. And then yeah. We we try and give people when they they join Bumps and Pod like you know more of a toolkit for routes to being creative because we get briefs that come across the desk and we've got days to come up with um yeah whatever the marvelous ideas are and and so it's used to have a, 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 a whole different uh, number of strategies you can bring to bear yourself on that and and um yeah obviously the first one was making that that first jelly banquet it's just necessity we had two thousand people coming we had a budget of two thousand pounds I mean that's kind of ludicrous um yeah. you end up doing you end up doing what you can afford you end up doing what you can um deliver within the skill set of friends and families i think my at one point my mother had co-opted um her friends across uh south london and to use all their domestic fridges to be able to make enough jellies and they each made 50 uh, and when they came together, that gave us enough to, to, to do it. We, we didn't have access to commercial fridges. We couldn't afford mm. to hire commercial kitchens. Um, but actually, as a consequence of that, um, it helped us sell loads of tickets because they're all yeah. excited to be participating in this. And this, they told all their friends about it. And um, lots of those people came. And it meant that you know the audience wasn't just um, uh, young design kids in in london it, 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 it was many more people as well um but going beyond that you know because we're all so often challenged to come up over the course of a weekend because someone else hasn't <laughs> delivered their job but come up with a world first something that's never yeah. been done before yeah. um there are lots of ways to do that and, and as he said um sometimes heavy constraints pushing in certain directions sometimes uh we spend a lot of time looking at history um, if something hasn't been done for 400 years and you use contemporary techniques and technology to do it, and it's something we still know about 400 years later, there's probably something 
kind of cool about it that history is a really good editor um you know use that I mean, we're one of our big projects at the moment we're making a whole museum about shakespeare now um yeah good thing is is that uh shakespeare's still relevant today and still performed today but you know we can bring lots of different um uh situations to bear on on this body his body of work um that perhaps haven't been expanded on and hopefully in the process doing mm. something learn something new um you know, but the same is true. I and mean, one of my one of my um, favorite field trips was to the Osmotech in Versailles and, and smelling my way through history. Um, and of course, some of the very ancient filters and uh, scents that they have um, now it'd be ludicrous to, to to make them because some of the the ingredients are potentially quite dangerous. <laughs> So you know, if you try and if you try and learn from them and reconstruct them in in your own practice, um, where what strange combinations or or or, or um, creative gymnastics do you have to go through? And could that be the discovery of a a, a new typology of um, flavor? I, I think it'd be really exciting. Yeah, no, no, no. I think honestly, like spot on. And we, we, you know, when you were talking before about like sometimes there's there's constraints out of your control. But when we're thinking about constraints generally, th those things are constraints like like price point and uh, like how much you have mm. to spend and therefore what is the return on investment and kind of boring stuff. Sometimes your constraints are like thermodynamic constraints and you're like, th these are the physical parameters that we are trying to break down, you know, and then thinking in a design thinking kind of methodology of thinking, okay, so what can we achieve with the tools that maybe have been invented for a different purpose and try and apply them to this experiential design. Well, it's actually Trevor and, and we got to work on the um, Flavor Fireworks project together, which I think is a really good example of where you can take that sort of thinking and we're able to do that um, effectively. And, and, you know, I think I think the best ideas are quite simple to explain, like uh, mm. fireworks and flavor. Well, yeah. Uh, we wanted to call it Flavor Fireworks. Uh, the uh, team involved, it's for Vodafone. They wanted to do something that had never been done before because the first message had been sent on a Vodafone network. So they thought that was their, that was a real USP. Um, and we said, well, let's set, fireworks are great. Everyone loves them. Um, you know, they, they want to call them multi-sensory fireworks. I was uh, pointing out that all fireworks are actually <laughs> quite multi-sensory <laughs> on their own. <laughs> Um, but you know, we 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 want to call them flavor files, um, just to demonstrate the intentionality of um choreographing the flavors that you smell um at the same time as the fireworks are, are, are exploding in front of you. And of course, you've got a real challenge with that because um, you know, normally if you go see a fireworks show, you've got uh, fireworks exploding um out in front of you and um you see them. A little, little while later, you hear them. Um, and at first we thought the firework shells would pack them up full of all sorts of uh, uh, scent material. Um, but the speed of smell is <laughs> a lot slower than the speed of light and the speed of sound. Um, and, you know, also there's there's the real risk that if we're doing that, then, then um, fireworks which have their own smell, which is very pungent and uh, the heat um, and energy from it would, would destroy um those ways before they even had a chance to gently very very slowly waft towards people so it'd be the worst choreographed show imaginable and, and you know so that took us to um 
really looking to a different industry, the stage special effects industry. And um, well, I should say, actually, the first industry we looked at was um, uh, weapons logistics from World War One, <laughs> when people have, when, when uh, the various um, warring nations have been looking at how do you how do you uh, get a critical amount of um, uh, some sort of airborne droplets or gas towards two people's Ooh. sensory apparatus or skin. Um, of course, when we're pitching this to the uh, mayor's office, uh, we weren't saying that we were um, looking to, to, to weapon systems uh, to then deploy across the capital, um, <laughs> to, <laughs> which I don't think would have got signed off. Um, but we did we did our own due diligence and made sure that um, yeah. the actual the actual thing that we created and built was absolutely tamper proof. So if, if anyone had interfered with it at all, none of them would trigger. Um, so there's no there's no risk to um, or, or at least managed risk to uh, any mm -hmm. participants. But one, yeah, of so super, one of the super irritating or I guess like more boring aspects to that is that each of those uh, flavors, I guess, because they were sometimes having a topical application as well as being able to be ingested, they needed to abide by two different sets of legislation. So they had to be fragrance and also flavor. And, and beyond that as well, they had to be fragrance and flavor, but but because um, the live audience's flavor fireworks show um, was uh, up to a quarter of a million people, is just vast. Um, and but if more people turned up, that would be a crowd control risk. Mm -hmm. um, so it was the hardest thing we've done. We obviously worked on it for over a year together. We weren't allowed to tell anyone about it. You're so excited. It's the most <laughs> exciting thing you've ever done. You can't tell anyone, which is uh, challenging. There was one day when we got to promote it before it went live, and the the, the reason for that was just so that not too many people uh, arrived. Um, and uh, but because the people coming might not know about what was going on, we need to make sure that um, as well as abiding by these different le legislations, um, we weren't compromising anyone's um, cultural or dietary strictures. Um, so everything had to be uh, beyond that hypoallergenic, lal, kosher, um, and uh, to make it even more complicated, um, because we're putting this out right next to the Thames, everything had to be um, absolutely biocompatible so it could run off into the Thames and we keep all the fish safe. Um, so <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of mastery uh, in your composing um, the, 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 the finished products. There's literally like every single legislative category you yeah. could possibly tick the box off. Um, but in a way, that's actually one of the things that like one of my old mentors said to me is, is uh, legislation and, and controls actually makes you more creative because mm -hmm. it makes you think outside of the box, but also constrains you to think in new ways using the constraints you currently have. And I think that that relates to so many different things. And I'm so pleased you touched on, on that one. But one thing that I wanted to, to raise with you, which I think you've done I think better than anyone. And sometimes it's not, I, I feel like I haven't been as uh, able to support as I could have, um, but the BSF has. But what you guys have done really, really well is collaboration and being able to collaborate across disciplines and through multiple different domains of uh, like expertise or market. I think you guys have done that unbelievably well. And I guess it goes to show that you have these tentacles looking all over the place and can kind of spot the the unique gap, the UFP. 
Well, I mean, there's, there's, uh, I have a very strong drive to collaborate, and that's only that. That's really because if you inspect something yourself um, and then try and execute it, um, the fi the final thing is never quite as good or sparkling <laughs> as you imagined. But if you bring two minds together and they um, both create it, it might be better than you've ever ever imagined. Um, so that's that's the that's the sort of goad. That's the driver to to collaboration. Of course, you know, a really good way to make things um to innovate is to push together different disciplines that that might not habitually speak um so in that case of course um we were taking uh your um uh expertise and then we're working with um uh, special effects technicians as well putting them together um and then all the the, the specialists in in um public events um and some storytelling as well thrown in for, for good measure and when you get them all all together um, there's something that genuinely hasn't been explored before, um, but and and so it's a really good. Again, it's that's another tool that's 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 in the box if you can um, look at new new technologies or very old technologies um, and different disciplines that don't that don't normally speak. Um, you can arrive at something um, quite remarkable. Yeah, I think that's really cool. I remember Hitchcock when he was when he saw Jaws for the first time. You know, he said like. You know Spielberg really sees beyond the Presidio March. So again, it's it's that kind of thing. You get you're given a project, you know, what are being work, uh, and it's it's then it's it's been able to go beyond that and and bring in imagination, bring in other people, and being able to cross form. So um, now that's you know what you're touching on here is again giving people permission to express themselves. Mm. And, and and I think and I think situating with that, um, yeah, it already comes down to stories, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah, always, 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 and and all of that, all of that starts, um, you know, whether it's Spielberg or Hitchcock, they're starting with a script. Um, you know, they've got an idea somewhere, they write it down. That idea is so compelling; they're able to get investment. They're able to then yeah get it made, bring on board all the all the sort of fasting infrastructure of filmmaking. Um, and I think the same is true with a lot of the things we do. Um, you know, it starts with, with writing down or sketching an idea, um, but and then you can take people. Then you can take people with you. It, but also, it's the resilience because, again, say with Jaws, if the fish worked, the film would be far different than it would turned out to be. <laughs> it was. It was because the fish didn't work. He said, "Well, I have to reimagine this story and tell it in a different way." Um, so again that often faces us. And I think, again, when it comes to food, it is a multi-sensorial experience. And we often forget that, that chefs cook in a way that a flavorist doesn't think about, but they're actually doing the same things in a different way. Do you know, in, in terms of like a flavor design and things, sometimes you would think about masking, but then you're thinking, why am I masking anything? If, if it doesn't have a positive influence that impacts hedonism, why am I putting it in in the first place? You mm. know, so... I think that's that's a completely different topic, which gets to like how you make facsimiles of different products, and and then you start to think why, and also what's the market potential of all of that, and we can go down another massive rabbit hole on that one. Yeah, um, have you ever explored um, a kind of misperception? So not a misconception, but actually playing with people's perception based on your renewed or now new knowledge of how people perceive a cross-modal stimulus, this gestalt, this idea of one 
sensory experience? Uh, yes, and yes, and sometimes not always with success. <laughs> like, okay. Yeah. And part of and part of that is obviously with uh, working the rum food and drink. There's so much trust involved with it, um, and people really care about what 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 they're doing. Um, you know, we did a lot of work with um, the brilliant Roald Dahl Story Company and a theatre company called Les Enfants Terribles. Um, looking at uh, dinner at the Twits, dinner with the Twits, so taking um, uh, the most disgusting uh, characters uh, of Dahl um, and then um, creating a delightfully disgusting uh, meal. Of course, um, the meal was absolutely delicious, it just looked disgusting. Um, unfortunately most of the audience members when we told them they're getting a disgusting film when it looked uh meal when some of the elements looked like they're wriggling on the plate um <laughs> you know when some of them had um uh rather visceral um uh animal feet and bones uh, protruding from the dishes um, it was too, too much, and um, I guess missed some of, the, some of the very joyful and delicious food that were being. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, you kind of missed the point. <laughs> so you have to, you, you do have to be careful with it. It did, though, we did get the opportunity, though, to go and swab down the back of um, uh, Roald Dahl's writing chair himself, and uh, we found some living organisms down there. And that was, that was like, you know, when you do a really, really good day at work, and this was a really good day on the phone. I'd spoken to the, uh, the team that was running um, his, his the the museum and the team that the, the family and they both said, well, if the other one gives you permission to go swab down the back of the writing chair, you can do it. And they both said that, so then we got to go swab down the back of the chair. And um, so we, we we then sent we had three living organisms. We sent them to the lab, and uh, they said, well, uh, one of them is don't go anywhere near that be pretty much poisonous if you're making a ferment with that the other one um well, that probably make you feel a bit ill might be disgusting and the third one well that would give you a, that can give you quite a nice sour beer um so we made a made a, uh, made a good secondary fermentation made a grats and ale um before before sours were quite as popular as they are now and that was um that was uh weird and wonderful being able to serve that up on the 100th anniversary of Roald Dahl's uh, birth to his his then widow. I mean, that's a weird, weird event. Weird evening. Great fun. That's the weirdest thing I've ever had. But but equally amazing. You know, you made a beer out of the microorganisms that were living on his chair. That's unbelievable. I've all, they, I've, maybe I've, they were living on his body. I don't know. <laughs> maybe. And the essence, just, the essence of creativity. <laughs> yeah. The essence of creativity. <laughs> Uh, yeah. with, with vicious with vicious humor as well <laughs> cantankerous cantankerous humor yeah Do you know i feel like actually in terms of like uh that there's a there's a number of books that i that i think i've i've also mentioned to you guys before and specifically mm. to you sam do you know uh, i think there's one book called booze uh, so like the the history of booze and mm. actually how this becomes like the social lubricant and you know one of those favorite things of like uh um alcohol um making people pregnant accidentally since the dawn of time and mm. and all of these kind of weird stupid snap phrases and catchphrases mm. in a way like that alcohol itself has a super long history and i wonder if you guys have done anything similar where you've kind of paired it 
two, uh, like like the Roald Dahl story, where you've paired something historically and then followed it through to what it looks like and smells like today based on what it may have been like then. Well, talking talking of which, I, I, I really like um, Uncorking the Past is a fantastic book. Um, it's by a chap called Patrick McGovern. He, he's like a um, the Indiana Jones of the drinks world, going into ancient tombs, and then working out what what some of those drinks might have been, and and um, like his theory as well that, that that really all of human civilization is is based on booze, and and you have the switch switch from um, hunter gatherer society to an agrarian economy, and and um, the theory used to be is because um, uh, wise and pious farmers. Um, wanted wanted to uh, grow their bread um so obviously this is in the 19th century it's quite closely related to to, to um you know ideas of sort of eternal godliness in christ um but but actually patrick on says do you want bread or do you want this like thing that you got to stick around in one place to bloody ages till it's ready to drink and then it makes all of you have a great time and you get to work <laughs> together and things happen it's really magical um and of course it's nutritional as well um and that's beer um so 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 ideas that i mean and then and then that's before you even get into um uh fermentation giving you tradable commodities and and you know being a basis for foundational um basis for capitalism um so yeah anyway uh, <laughs> going back to your question that's a bit of a giant thought... leap from beer to capitalism no 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 well, it's that. definitely that no 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 i think i think it's i think it's i think part of it is is um you're able to it's it's one of the means to to preserve um a tradable commodity so you can then Start trading your excesses um, and develop up trade routes that that expand beyond um, uh, individual parishes. I, uh, yeah, anyway, there's not. This is not. This is <laughs> not. This is not theory. the exact forum, but it's actually still a pretty good forum for them. We've spoken about capitalism before, uh, with, surprisingly, mm-hmm. in a in a pr- previous podcast, yes. actually with uh, <laughs> with the director general of EFA, so the European oh. Flavor and Fragrance Association, um, and we were talking about his past. Um, but this is really cool. So yeah, no hold hard. But how can you? How can you? How can you not? It's 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 um, you know, I'm, I'm obsessed with with coffee, and and coffee is a giant tradable commodity. But of course, it's in the coffee houses that um, all of all of insurance and Lloyd's of London are, are, are founded, um, yeah. and the stock market and Jonathan's. Um, so. Um, you know, food flavor and uh, some of the, some of the most the most aromatic dishes. Most flavorful uh, beverages that we have um, have a very direct causal link as well as um, uh, reciprocal link as well. Sometimes, no, sometimes it is the food that has brought people together, you know, that would never have come together before. So again, in the coffee shops of London, people wouldn't have really sat down with each other and uh, it, it facilitated those I- swapping of ideas. And well, beyond that, the invention of companies, like, you know, like when Elizabeth first is giving the East India Trading Company um, monopoly on being companies, what's that for? A lot of it is to get different ingredients so that we can eat more interesting stuff. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's um, yeah, 
It's very many many people have written the entire history of the planet through food and and you know living in an era where um you know i'd say arguably one of the greatest challenges facing humanity at the moment everyone's got their eyes on ai but um you know the next 50 years we have to grow as much food as humanity has in in all of humankind um yeah, I think that also means that that <laughs> flavoring and air sats and and f- foods with a likeness for one another that we might have been um uh fond of uh will grow ever more important. I mean, we've all we're all we're all familiar with the fact that you know looking at a screen now, if I want to save something, I click on this this icon that looks a bit like um a floppy disk like how many people listen to this passcode have never used a floppy disk i barely use them myself um (laughs) but we all we all know exactly what it does and what it means um and so so and already we've seen food um moving into rather sort of bizarre realms particularly with the with the uh, sort of the protein alternatives that are saved up um the served up um but where can we go beyond them into into and be more creative can we create a, a, a vast new array of um uh flavorings and tastes that can the burgeoning tables of tomorrow um can be laden with um that are, that are not limited by what already exists um on the planet and how we go about conceiving that i think that's a challenge um, for you guys actually in your industry 100 <laughs> percent. but i think that it's it's a it's a joint challenge in a way because on one side, it's the challenge of uh, creation and uh, actually like making something physically possible, you know, like the, the thermodynamic constraints and all of that kind of stuff and understanding what source materials we have from a source mapping perspective and sustainability um, perspective and also sometimes biodiversity too. Mm. You know, like if something has a monopolized commodity market, if a, a commodity has a monopolized market on a given raw material, then that brings up a whole load of other things where through climate change, those things may actually be impossible to grow. What do we do about that? Mm. And thinking about it uh, preemptively can give us some insight into actually maybe we should think of something different, but that's only one side of it. Mm. That's one side of the next side of it actually is how do you make this new experience or this new product? How do you now make it appealing to a consumer base that so Mm. far has never experienced those things before especially with that specific label. And, and that's an important part of it is people need to buy things in order to make them viable. Mm. And, and, and also uh, the other thing I'm fascinated with that is, is um, balance between familiarity um, mm. plus novelty. Um, everyone's desperate to know what's the latest restaurant, what's the newest cuisine, um, what, what can I be cooking to show off my... Um, uh culinary nous um you know what what's the most obscure flavors i'm going to get in my elaborate uh craft uh ales and uh lurid spirits um but also if it's if it's completely strange it's a very high level of rejection because it's just too weird um and where do we where do we over time over over many years over decades uh, want to take it because you can then incrementally look back at you know sat down with um uh, the founder of the food market curb petra baron um and we're looking at the trajectory of of um uh, street food and and people's repertoire like you know your normal person in the streets familiarity with different cuisines and how it's just it's just um 
utterly in um utterly exploded out in in different directions um but but of course it can you know that that's that's always incremental yeah exactly and it's and it's incremental but the, so this i think you'll probably know this better than me from a the marketing perspective but everything falls along an uh what what's called like a an, the uncanny valley relationship mm. so when something is is too weird too novel then people reject it and mm. everything's related to this like um acceptance so mm. something has to be novel enough for people mm. to then want that prior to prioritize that over something different but it can't be too different because then people are now uh, kind of um wronged by it you know or like uh, averse mm. to it because it's too different and i wonder what do you think what what are your perspectives on uh lobsters for that same why, reason so why lobsters <laughs> why lobsters in okay. particular so oh, lobsters <laughs> So lobsters in particular, only because I think that lobsters have a particular uh, lobsters and prawns and shellfish in general. I think they have they have a pretty interesting history in terms of food, in how they were sometimes seen as a not that appealing, but food available, available food. You live by the sea, sweet. I'm going to eat lobsters, but it was like a lower class snack, and how it ties into class sometimes. And now a lobster is seen as highly appealing, and therefore has a cost price to suit. You know, and and the other part of that is, come on, they look pretty much like insects, don't they? I mean, they look amazing, though. I and mean, there's a, there's a there's a reason the surrealists were painting them all the time because they're they're, they're highly arresting, highly structural. Um, it's like the artichoke of the sea. Um, mm. it just looks, looks spectacular. Plus, plus you've got all the rigmarole. It's hard to eat it. Um, and you know, when something's really hard to eat, um, either maybe it's going to be. Um, uh, pretty pretty laborious so so you don't want to pay very much for it or you're paying for the privilege it's like the, the sort of <laughs> tom sawyer getting people to to pay him to paint the fence technique. maybe but but maybe it's a preservation technique for that species that they look so unattractive that people won't mm. eat them mm. <laughs> maybe <laughs> it's not it's not working that well though is it it's, uh, it's, uh, but 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 you know, again, again, like you know, if you want, if you want expenses, expenses, the uh, you know, the ultimate spice, isn't it? There's, there's, um, you know, throughout yeah. human history, almost everything has been at some point when it was rare, very expensive, and also considered an aphrodisiac for which um, people have historically paid a premium. Um, I like, I like, I like the idea though that that um, it just was a bit of an aphrodisiac because diets were so poor in yesteryear that, <laughs> that anything a bit different would just sort of generally help out, help people feel a bit better in, in their day, in their daily life. But um, you know, I mean, if if it, I guess the question is if um, if lobsters were very cheap, um, would would they be on every menu? And that's the thing is that that idea of exclusivity, you know, mm. and uh, like availability as well, that becomes a thing. Like mm. catching lobsters is, is a different task to like trawling for fish or mm. that. And that becomes a, a different kind of uh, idea. But you, you definitely do see like um, uh, price consideration and people enjoying like exclusive foods based on how difficult they are to obtain. The weirdest one I've ever seen, because it doesn't make any logical sense to me. In a well-known supermarket that I think has green as its predominant color, uh, you can buy 4,000-year-old 
pink Himalayan rock salt that has a sell-by date of six months. Now think about how unlikely it is for them to have mined it at just the right time for that to have had the shelf life of six months. It's 4,000 years old already. That's unbelievable. Pink Himalayan rock salt, exclusive. <laughs> that, that, is, that is very fantastic. I'll, I'll make sure I'm throwing all of mine out because it's probably gone off by now. Yeah, yeah. I wonder, I wonder, this is pure speculation, but I wonder how, because there's been the oversupply of uh, venison in, in Britain that is going on to um, school menus, apparently. To, to, I wonder, wonder how, what, the up, what the uptake has been uh, with that. And do you think that's, a, that's because of oversupply? Uh, I think there were a lot of deer, <laughs> basically. <laughs> so, <laughs> but but um, we're going to be a menace. So, so you want to do something with it? So from, from my, like, I guess, the narrow perceptions of this is turn it into some kind of nugget and it will honestly oh. sell like hotcakes. Venison, Some kind of nugget doesn't venison, matter. Venison nuggets. I think if, if, if there's one takeout, <laughs> we once we once made quail nuggets. They were extraordinary because quail is so fatty um, yeah. that it brings it brings a, a, a sort of decadence all of its own. Plus, also you know that one nugget is uh, well, two nuggets is one quail. <laughs> You're using the quail <laughs> the quail's breast to make your nugget. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Okay. So uh, we, we've touched on a number of things already, and actually we can carry on going on each of these kind of different tangents. But I wanted to take the opportunity now just to talk about some of the things that you've done in the past. And we've done that kind of intertwined with the, the discussions we've had. But people won't be able to see this because they'll be listening on. But you're sitting in front of a flavor organ, and I know that, but a flavor organ to a flavor chemist is a room that's full of tiny little bottles um, that you select based on their sensory qualities and mix together in order to uh, create a gestalt aroma or experience that can be delivered in an end-use application like an ice cream or a milkshake. What does your flavor organ do? So behind me is a, a full working pipe organ. Um, and it's, it's, I'd always been inspired for many years by um, the descriptions in, of, in all this Huxley's Brave New World of the scent organ that, that they dance beneath in Westminster Abbey. Um, and in uh, Huisman's um, cocktail organ that, you know, when he's sequestered in his house, he uses to tra travel his mind by playing various pieces of music and then it composes a cocktail for him. And we, we started looking at doing something like either one of those and actual fact it'd be kind of crude um you know you can get a much better drink made by uh, a good barman much more variety and then than you ever would pro well certainly in, in, when we made this in 2014 um by solenoid valves draining into a gutter puttering into a glass and then you know some some ice being released into it, it, it it's not would it be the best drink there is um but that's when at the time we we're collaborating with um Professor Charles Spence, cross-modal research lab. And we realized that actually, and, and our, our challenge was to try and scale up to a vast scale um, uh, tastings, specifically whiskey tastings. And we realized that um, actually by um, going through a very unusual process of commissioning an organ, we could create an instrument that choreographed your sense of 
um, uh, well, flavor, your flavor perception, um, as you're drinking a glass of whiskey and um, directed your palate around the glass. So as, so we work with composer, Charles to set the brief, a composer to do the, write the music, um, an organ translator to translate it to the organ builders, organ builder to build the organ that would allow the piece to be played that would change your perception of taste. Um, and then we went back to the start and made it look like a, a design item that, that fit, fit with the brands, made it, made it originally for Johnny Walker um, and their very high-end um, uh, blue label um, uh, whiskey. Um, and uh, so basically as the organ's played and it can play it itself, um, it, it directs your um, palate around the whiskey wheel. Um, so to some of the cardinal flavors that you find in Johnny Walker, um, it makes them easy to identify. It also, like a good tasting, um, gives you memory hooks, gives you moments to hold on to, so that next time you open up that bottle, you can you have a better better recall of some of the some of the um, flavor notes you might have experienced. And it's doing that using um, the language of an orchestra, which is quite often used by the master blender, who at the time is Jim Beveridge, um, and uh, you know in in but. Obviously, because we didn't want to tour with an orchestra, then we could afford to tour with an orchestra. It wasn't as iconic. Uh, an organ has all those different voices of an orchestra, so you can still communicate about it using um, the analogy of music, which is good. So, quite often, what we're what we're always doing, and this is useful in terms of exploring that, it's using um, things that are tried and tested and have spectacles. So organs, the king of instruments, 400 year old techniques, combining that with contemporary science um, and learning and, and practitioners um, to, to, do, to deliver an experience that is food and drink related um, and gives you a sense of wonder about something that might be quite familiar to you, in this case, a glass of whiskey. How do you enchant that? And then is using um, the senses to give you more language to be able to attack, explore, explain um, what's going on, on on the palette. So in this case, there's a giant whopping great big organ, there's loads of projection stuff on, Jude Law was playing it, it was at the center of a big feast, and you had the symphony. Um, so it all, all comes together to create a, a moment of spectacle and wonder, ideally. Wow. But honestly, like, what an experience as well. And in terms of experience design, it is a cross-modal device in and of itself, you know, because you're adding all of these different elements that are cross-modally perceived and you're adding them together to give people actually something usable at the end because it's a memory. You're, you're locking in those memories related to specific cross-modal attributes and linking those things up. When you smell guayacol, uh, which is, I guess, one of those smoky notes, which is one of the cardinal points of whiskey, you're remembering it by these different cross-modal points, like the sound of the organ at this stage or and, and how it blends in with the rest of it. So that analogy of, a, of an orchestra is, is really good. You mentioned Charles Spence. Now, I have a weird story that's connected to Charles Spence and also yourselves. So mm -hmm. I was fortunate in enough to be invited to uh, come attend I think it was like an open innovation day or something but it was more to celebrate uh, I guess one of your anniversaries as Bompus and Power it might have been your 10-year anniversary and 
um, I was, and that we'll talk about because that was unbelievable. You kind of opened the, opened the doors to some people that you'd collaborated with before on a number of different things that maybe people hadn't experienced before. And it was unbelievable, like really good. You put a lot of work into actually having a great party, but also appreciating the fact that lots of people had helped you or uh, aided you in creating something that is now obviously of massive value. Um, but whilst I was walking around, I met a guy who introduced himself, but he didn't introduce himself. He just put his hand out and I shook his hand and he was wearing red trousers. And he said, do you not remember me? And, and I said, oh, I do remember you. Aren't you the mayor of Bristol? And he said, no, I'm not the mayor of Bristol. And I was like, oh, my God, I, th I, I could, could have sworn I met you last, last week. And actually, he doesn't look anything like the mayor of Bristol. He just happened to also be wearing red trousers. And the reason I'd met him before is obviously because he's someone I've read all the books of and all of the papers <laughs> of, and he's Professor, Professor Charles Spence. <laughs> so hopefully he, doesn't, hopefully he doesn't mind the shout out as the mayor of Bristol. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoy that. And, and that is the purpose of parties and bringing together different folks. <laughs> <laughs> if only to misapprehend one another but also to create memories which is yeah is, is, i'm, yeah, I'm exactly. sure i'm sure the mayor of bristol is looking for his invitation <laughs> i was wondering what happened he sure, he sure is probably i do you know I, I thinking back the reason that he probably i met the mayor of bristol wasn't through something really fancy i think i had my car running on idle uh on one of the high streets uh in clifton and i think he may have been Happened, happened to be walking past and said, please, will you turn your fire engine off? And I said, oh, my God, that's the mayor of Bristol. <laughs> but it was pretty it was pretty embarrassing to, to confuse him with actually a, uh, an idol, I guess. But not that I idolize people or deify man in any way. Um, but, yeah, it was a it was a cool experience. And there was a lot of other things. So it would be quite cool. Can you remember some of the the. Um, examples of things that you had on show that day uh well the i mean that was that was a party for our 10th birthday party and just say thank you for the people that we love and work with and and um the theme for it we took was ideas we'd had we'd always wanted to do but all the clients and collaborators had said no to because no. they were too lurid dangerous disgusting decadent horrid um and it was it, you know i think i think the um yeah, the, the party the party was so boozy i think it might have taken a divot out of um you know <laughs> some some bit of the economy um with so many people um uh having a, a quieter day the next day but there were there were there was uh volcano jacuzzis with mermen swimming around in it we had um we always wanted to use the uh, refuse waste shoots for for um uh scaffolders as a slide so we made a giant slide out of that and you went down sleeping bags um, there was crossbow bow hunting in an all-girl crossbow vegan huntress club. There was uh, a world's worst cake competition, so like really disgusting cakes. And I think that that um, uh, preceded the whole trend that we had of uh, you know with some of the um, goblin core cakes that were exploding. In, in people's nihilistic lockdowns, which I thought were actually rather wonderful and continue to be, <laughs> continue to be pretty cool. Um, what else? There was ghost life drawing. Um, the police turned up and they said that someone had been stabbed. 
turned out that someone's sausage dog had been poked by a pencil um, and they stuck around for a little bit, which is quite fun. Um, <laughs> but yeah, good, a good party all around. Oh, and, someone, and then was the, the central stage was called the Temple of the Tongue and there was someone dressed up, up as a giant tongue writhing around on it, um, which is unusual. And pretty fun, though. Pretty fun. And it definitely makes you go, hmm, I wonder why no one selected this to go forward with. You know, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. why don't they have giant tongues? <laughs> we all need a giant tongue for writhing. Do you know, I think that's important, though, because you didn't forget about those things. And when you think like in terms of like design thinking methodologies and failing fast and mm. uh, capturing all of your, uh, I guess, iterations in order to learn in a Bayesian way, mm. um, you need to be able to capture those things. Now, it, give, it gave you the opportunity to put forward those things that didn't necessarily succeed. But because they didn't succeed, actually, they became a theme in and of themselves, which was quite cool. Yeah, and, and, and I think it's, it's um, yeah, I, I, I like celebrating the ideas that didn't happen um, always. Uh, yeah, it's helpful uh, to write them down and, and uh, as well as the ideas that do. Um, because, uh, you know, they're, they're really not happening because it's not the right context that they can be fun to. <laughs> yeah, I mean, no, like, exactly. you know, for, for, for example, uh, you know, it's in 2014, started working on um, uh, a, a restaurant where we're cooking with lava. It wasn't until 2022 that we got to actually build it. Um, and that wasn't, you know, it's putting together the time, the place, the budget, the people, the resource. But the idea of uh, melting down igneous extrusive rock in a massive blast furnace, telling a story of terroir, pouring it out and, and frying stuff over it. Um, so <laughs> Very cool. still, a, still a highlight. Do you know, I actually used the same demo, but uh, just slightly changed some of the parameters. So when you think of how the, how the, the lava was cooking thing, um, I was doing a, a similar thing uh, but in reverse. So I was pouring uh, molten caramel mixed with chocolate, which was tempered um, mm -hmm. over dry ice. So it was already beyond the triple point of dry ice and it was creating crunchy. So it was creating crunchy chocolate because it was bubbling up and solidifying into that chocolate. So uh, yeah, you can, you can send my, my um, work application. I'd love to come work with you guys. <laughs> that, but, that sounds, that sounds beautiful. And um, yeah, I'd love to try that. And it was a really great demo. And I actually, weirdly, I did it at a, like a friend's dinner party. It was planned to do it at, at work. And I did part of it for a customer at work, uh, which was like just a fun day. And then we had some dry ice left over and some of this, this right. mix and the temper. So I, I took it over to a friend's house and it was really pretty great. Um, yeah. So that was really fun. So I just wanted to let you know that like I learn from you guys every single day. And I think that more and more people are actually looking to you for some insights into things that other people aren't thinking about at all, but they should be. And let's talk about imminent future of food, because mm -hmm. I think that's potentially one of the most valuable uh, products now created by Bombs and Power. And that's my perspective. Well, um, thank you very much, Trevor. And, and um, of course, a lot of, a lot of that inspiration comes from speaking with experts in the field, um, such as yourself, uh, Sean and um, your listeners, um, and then trying to have a think about where your <laughs> where you can put the sort of temper of your 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 brains with the 
nitrogen and, and uh, dry ice <laughs> of, 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 of other scientists and experts. Um, yeah, our, our future food report, we do um, each year. And, and in many ways, it's a provocation for the team of the studio to try and project themselves into the future. Um, it's a critique of other futures reports um, in that a lot of futures reports talk about things that have already happened mm-hmm. because they have to evidence them. Um, but and we're talking about you know how soon is too soon. Um, you've got Everett Rogers' bell curve of how trends travel, um, and of course, um, you know by the time it's in most trends reports, you're already at the early adopters rather than the innovators. The innovator is the person that's done it. So you can't be an innovator if you're reading the report; it's already happened. Um, of course, you can can then commercialize it because it's it's um, where you make the money with those things is when they go to a mass audience. Um, but, you know, we really like being the innovators. So to be the innovators, we have to um, keep on looking to, to ever receding futures and, and moving into them. And in many ways, the, part of the practice is to challenge ourselves to quickly get ideas out the door. So by making them public, our best new ideas, um, anyone can do them if they do, bully for them. Or we should be working hard to get them as well. And, and yeah, I think, I think that's, that's quite a fun race against time because innovation is always a bit of a race against time um but you know so this year we're looking at things like the umwelt of pets um so you could smell like your dog um you know it feels like very few places that aren't pet friendly now um although uh i think jay rayner once once uh, trashed a, a brilliant well recently trashed a very brilliant eatery um because there were so many pets, so many dogs in it that ruined his meal. Um, it was rather commodity, actually, but um, there it is. Um, but uh, this was this is really looking at um, you know we have spectacles if we can't see the right way. Um, what if we could invent devices that would give us the same rapture that dogs have when running around? Of course, you see them running around, you think they're they're happy. What they're really doing is being outside. It's like going to the cinema for them that the, the, the smell conveys so much meaning so much information just the stories it's like reading a great work of literature every time <laughs> they go outside and, and smell a lamppost um so you know could we create scenarios like that where you can experience um uh, the sensory apparatus of 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 um your pet we're also looking at things like uh, fractals in food um there's been work recently of from um uh, nasa on spaceship interiors being fractal based because for very long haul travel that could be much more relaxing could that would that help us make um more relaxing cafes or spa areas if we're doing a similar thing we know that obviously rocks are fractals plants are fractals um how can they turn up um and enchant us in their food and drink and if we send out with that as the aim where do we go so um yeah it's 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 a creative jamboree and and we like to invite people in yeah it's amazing and actually i'm fortunate in the fact that i've been able to to kind of uh well actually have known you guys to know to look at the website to like actually have a look around and find out what you're up to because what what you're talking about in terms of fractals sometimes the the application would be experiential but Oftentimes, I'm actually using it as a source of innovation and inspiration for myself. Mm-hmm. And with regards to, to fractals, particularly, 
uh, the world of CGI and uh, like computer vision actually yeah. leverages fractals and fractal patterns uh, a lot, uh, especially now. And it's kind mm. of a breakthrough because we're talking about these separate domains that now have uh, cross relevancy uh, through like tangential connections. And I, I think it would be super useful when you think of some of the, the fallbacks of plant-based meat and it not having the right texture to be able mm. to print and, and do those things based on fractal mm. um, patterning. Um, and yeah, so then I, then I can see that through an existing commercial application, but I'm using obviously some of the insights that you guys have generated to think, my God, I never thought about that. This could be super useful. Let me try it. Let me have a, have a little play. And I think this is a prime example of the brilliance of different brains because I hadn't thought about any of that. <laughs> it's <laughs> utterly, utterly delightful, and um, yeah, really exciting to hear how that, how um, yeah, when you when you put stuff out into the world, it has a life of its own, and and it can go on and and and, and shape things. And yeah, you know, we've yeah. all seen that with the sort of events we do, and you know, you find you you meet someone, and uh, you discover that ten years ago they went on a first date with their now partner they blagged their way into the guest <laughs> yeah. list it was it was a great they had a great rambunctious time together and and um that shaped the course of their life um but that can also work with ideas and and products and and uh, commercial services as well and, and, and um yeah it's good having those good having those open dialogues i didn't know it was going to be fair game for you to just open up on my personal life but fair <laughs> enough you got it spot on <laughs> <laughs> fantastic <laughs> not sure how how i so ended pleased. up on that guest list yeah <laughs> it's the best <laughs> no cer certainly when i was talking to our food craft team who are always trying to push the, the boundaries of of culinary development with flavors they certainly referenced your uh, insight work they you know eagerly always wait for it to come out and discuss it well, that's that's really good to hear. And I'll pass it on. We've got we've got a cracking team at the moment. Um, you know, the the lead on that um, has always been the strategy department here. Well, that's an, but, actually but, an interesting thing that you you now you have a strategy department. That's the so that's another question, another range of questions I was just about to ask you about. But carry on about the, the strategy. Yeah. So so uh, Alex uh, started it. Um, uh, Freddie is now running that. Um, Freddie's a, a, a man with a PhD in slimes specifically, um, but but it's it's again, yeah, he'll be in the kitchen with with uh, the chefs. He'll be with the uh, architects. He'll be with the designers. Um, uh, you know, looking at where where you can make something that exists between them that wouldn't otherwise otherwise happen. So, yeah, really. Thank you very much. I'm really pleased to, to hear that's hear that's helpful. Um, you know, we're always looking ourselves for new places to go for inspiration. Um, it's a it's a remarkable time now. I think in terms of that, um, you know, I, I'm just looking ahead to the weekends um, and the next weekends is like Manchester International Festival. You know, that just utterly extraordinary um, work and some that's not as good but still provocative. Mm -hmm. um will be presented there's you know just just now just this weekend you've got the hunteria museum reopening the vna museum of childhood um the uh the national portrait gallery all the rca finally shows um there's a lot of things to go see and and bring into your own practice whatever whatever it is um 
and and yeah, it's, it's, uh, yeah. I, I, one of the things that we ask people when we're when we're um, looking for future staff is just really what what people are excited about at the moment. Um, <laughs> it's a surprising number of people are just utterly stymied as they try to work out how to negotiate that that without being like. Oh, just going down the pub, <laughs> which is also <laughs> something that's perfectly valid. You can say that that's a, that's a very, very useful thing, um, a useful institution. Um, but if you can't, you know, there's so much to be excited about, so much to research, so much to learn. Um, yeah, I think it's a, that's a real foundation in terms of what we're looking at for, for people that we work with. That's one of the things I was going to ask you actually is, uh, how do you what do you look for in a, in a new um member of staff? Uh, I mean, curiosity, engagement, want to get out there and do things for people. Like, you know, one of the things we really, really value is um, it comes from food and drinks. So you got to, you got to want to host people. Mm -hmm. um, uh, yeah, so then it's about that bounty, that generosity. Um, but, but ultimately, uh, a, a sort of curiosity and an interest in learning. Um, mm -hmm. And you know, we work because we're working across a lot of different disciplines every discipline if it's film if it's theater if it's events if it's flavor they all have their own languages and normalized practices again architecture um so with all of that there has to be um yeah that there, there are there are inevitable frictions in terms of communication and process um and you know what's 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 uh what's acceptable working practices um you know, so, so there has to be a willingness to, to um, negotiate that and, and, and imagine what it's like to be other people. Mm -hmm. I, I wonder if you do, you, do you ever look for inspiration from other people that are innovating in slightly different spaces? So um, I, I know quite well, like some people who, who set up the immersive ensemble that do um, immersive theatre uh, in, in London and, and elsewhere now. Um, and I wonder if you, if you've been to any of their their shows and whether you've ever had the opportunity to collaborate with them or them you uh so don't think i've collaborated with them specifically uh, i don't think but um mm. know their work very well and um of course like immersive is a booming um industry but yeah it's one of the one of the places that will go for those collaborations so just today i had um coffee with the ceo of secret cinema so Perfect. like they 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 um they've got a really lovely relationship with them that's lasted for over a decade um and in fact a lot of the things we do we would have um we used to do all their catering so when mm. they started out we did all their first food and drink experiences so just um, jelly food experiences no they were like, at the beginning <laughs> the, no, the, no the, i mean at that point we're, we're running a catering company but but you know we went from you know, the first catering jobs of them doing hot dogs to uh, full um, uh, institutional food restaurants in the Pacific Northwest um, for one flew over the cookies nest with all the food was white um, and the, maybe there were sort of anesthetics in it as well. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> sort of strange, strange spices. Um, but um, but. You know that that those sorts of experiences meant that we were able to develop up networks with um, you know in in property, develop up networks um, mm -hmm. with uh, set designers, um, and start bringing them into our own own, own practice. Um, so yeah, so always looking for inspiration. There's inspiration everywhere. 
Yeah, it's really cool. And the, the thing I really like is like this idea of like constant learning. You know, you need mm -hmm. to be a constant learner, but in a way, everyone kind of wants to be. Sometimes you just don't get the opportunity and you kind mm -hmm. of have to put yourself out there to to want that and then to, to drive it forward. And um, I, I was just thinking of like another potential collaboration that I don't, I'm not sure that you guys have thought about, but from a, a technical standpoint, sometimes when you think of like uh, institutes that actually uh, historically, the British Isles has been really, really good at setting up clubs and setting up societies. And the BSF mm. is obviously one of these, um, but the, some are way, way older. And mm. th this setting up of clubs and a kind of institutes for, uh, you know, like this uh, continuous professional development kind of idea, it means that you get to cross collaborate with people that potentially have some of the same background, but oftentimes very different perspectives mm. and background and it gets you to to do those cross wires and I, I think what might be super useful for you guys and i found it very useful for myself is actually uh, collaborating with some people at the the institute of physics um mm. so they're looking at measuring and they're looking at trying to connect the dots with different things based on like um therm thermodynamics but also like uh, computing and uh, being able to like how do you find out the answer at of of this uh, super decentralized delineated mess in order to get some insight and it's been super useful for me i would um, i would be thrilled to do that that'd be good and i i i you yeah, know just chipping around the edges i'm always at lectures on um at the uh royal institution last weekend just looking at some uh high voltage and different plasmas and things you, like you, like that yeah. and sort of 19th, 19th century um high voltage demonstrations uh, there's a professor from harvard there um putting some of it up um and then speculating on where that could exist in a dining scenario yeah yeah no, amazing so, okay and th that's another one though okay and i think we're wrapping up probably but like Probably. I obviously don't want to, but I think we probably need to. The next conversation needs to be over a, a, a hot or cold beverage at uh, some time in the future. <laughs> but that sounds great. That uh, <laughs> sounds super good. Bye. <laughs> um, no, I, I wanted to quickly just take us back a bit to maybe some some opportunity that I've had to collaborate with you guys, uh, particularly for the British Society of Flavorists. So we once invited you to present. Um, at our um, annual symposium at the the uh, like a science institute um, kind of science center in Bristol called at Bristol, and can you can you remember what happened with that? Can you remember how that that played out? Uh, I think there were some experiments. It was pretty exciting. Um, there was a level of danger as well, um, <laughs> yeah. which uh, just to just to get it all sort of razzed up um what 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 specifically was the <laughs> so so i remember initially you started the talk off by trying to be very engaging with the audience but at the same time um setting up and demonstrating a um a cornichon or gherkin light bulb oh yeah gherkin yeah the gherkin chandelier yeah, yeah that both, was amazing we, we didn't that was that was very good yes it's uh Gherkins conducting electricity and um if you plug them into mains, don't try it at home. It is <laughs> just mains power and, and they 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 release light at sodium D line, um, which is same same wavelength as um parking lot bulbs. Um, but yeah, there's it's it's I mean the other thing is like you know, we've all been seeing lots and lots of talks, and the talks you really like are the ones with um you know an explosion, a big bang. 
yeah, yeah, exactly. Some 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 videos. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, and then all of that used to convey a specific a specific meaning. And and what I was what I was talking about then was like how a lot of what we spend our time doing is 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 trying to look at something that you might be quite familiar with. Um, yeah, if it's with brand teams, they'll be working the food stuff that they've worked with for many, many years. Um, and then how can you find something that's that's marvelous, that that tran is transformative, that gives it a sense of spectacle and awe and you get to see it fresh? Um, so glowing pickles, that's that's a good way to do it. It was definitely a, a box checking exercise, wasn't it? Um, can we? Yes, you did. And that was pretty amazing. <laughs> and then I think there was also something in the in the media, um, like around about the same time where someone I, th I think there may have been in china but there may have been somewhere else that was trying to um doctor um old vintages of wine and i think it was a chateau uh, lafitte uh, of some uh, yeah. some particular vintage and we tried to do the same with the house red and um i'm not sure it was successful but it was definitely fun <laughs> I mean that was that was very very cool and that's still something that I would love to do. There's, there there are certain finches of Lafitte where I believe some of the um, auction houses might have sold more than was ever grown. Um, so so watch out. There is there is there is there are a lot of fake foods. Um, but you know, could if we can if we can work out how to better use flavouring to give that complexity on the palate, wouldn't it be amazing if you could have um that complexity of flavor in your bottle um uh with that you know with playing with with the house red mm -hmm, exactly so the same experience but uh, irrespective of the, the the kind of growing conditions and the the necessity to produce it you know uh you know i think it's amazing um well sam we could obviously go on forever we need to, um, we need to do that it's <laughs> essential we what go on forever in person yeah no 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 the Lafitte forever on yeah forever well I think that maybe we should we should do it as a but like a, a cross cross uh, collaborative effort you know perhaps the BSF could support on that in some some respects but yeah 100 and then we we publicize it widely um thank you so much for your insights and it's really good to kind of get uh, someone else's perspectives um we've as we've said, we've we've go through some very prominent members of our super small niche industry, um, and it's really good to uh, get some new perspectives and also understand that uh, yeah, the, what is it? The future is orange. The future is bumpers and par. Well, I've got I've got to say, Trevor, it's such a joy to come speak to you. Um, I've loved all the projects we've realised over the years, um, and I'm in awe of um, the knowledge that you and your, your fellows in your industry have um, and the way it's used to shape the world around us um, in many hidden, mysterious, but also spectacular ways. Um, and uh, I thoroughly advocate um, anyone who's listening to this, who's, who's curious and is, is um, coming at this from an oblique angle, um, to find, find a flavorist. They have brilliant brains. They look at the world very, very differently um and what what's going to happen when your interests and insights occlude with theirs epic epic final thanks sam have a good evening you too thanks trevor it's great this has been a deep dive into the fascinating world of flavors with bsf flavor talks i hope that you've seen there's much more behind flavors 
it is hard to acquire that right level of experience in order to create the perfect taste. If you've worked up an appetite for flavour science, stay tuned for more episodes and help support our podcast by sharing it with others on social media or leave us a review.